since we are, we're a little short on time, like I said, I was joking, Pastor went long. I'll go ahead and get started. I'm going to try to figure out the audio on this. And if, if you're watching online or if you're on the recording, if something gets weird with the uh, audio, I apologize. I'm trying to try out a new setup so that people can actually kind of see me as I talk um, or if I write something on the board. But we're on Isaiah 42, and it's fascinating because this is actually exact timing because this was our reading in the Old Testament today in church. Um, was the first seven verses or so of Isaiah 42. So we're going to start with this. I'm going to have a little bit of a rabbit trail for you because it's something that I'm passionate about, um, and that's creatio ex nihilo, or as we would say in English, creation out of nothing. Um, that's a big deal for us doctrinally that people overlook often um, because it's really, really contrary to a lot of assumptions with world religions and the culture, but we'll get there in a second. Okay, so as a review, this is just kind of our Bible project graphic that I use. We're still in this section comforting our people, and we have these servant songs. So the servant is coming up in, in Isaiah 42. You can kind of see it on your screen right there. God's servant to the nations. Who is this servant? What does this servant look like? It's going to escalate. You're going to have it in 42, and it's going to culminate, especially in 52 and 53, with the suffering servant, the servant that actually is pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities. We're going to go into that in more detail. Pastor Dinger, it's funny, he's doing these servant songs too. So he's like, it's like we're going to be stealing each other's thunder, I think. A little bit on this, although he's going to get there earlier than me because I'm going to go in chronological order through the book. He's just going to the servant songs themselves. And so I'm going to probably give you a little bit more context in terms of the uh, the chapters themselves. All right. So here's how it starts. And this is what we read in church today. And if you haven't gone to church yet, this is what you will read. But Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 starts this way. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Excuse me. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, God, sorry, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. I'm going to zoom in on this in a second. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open up the eyes that are blind, to bring up prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sat in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, no my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Okay, and we'll go ahead, we'll, we'll skip through that in just a second. So I want to kind of stop there for a second already on this creation ex nihilo thing. So I want this idea, this is uh, 42, 5 through 9. Throughout the scriptures, the implication that you get, it's not directly said in the Bible, God created out of nothing. It doesn't say that exactly, okay? But what we do get is verses like this. Created the entire heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth. So the heavens and the earth, that's a Hebrew idiom that means everything. So in Genesis 1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that means everything. Okay, and here's how the church has traditionally talked about this. And this is creation out of nothing. So God created all matter, time, space, the entire space-time continuum. He did not use pre-existing materials. There's an old joke, right, where it says you're going to create your universe, and God says to the person, get your own dirt. That's, that old joke is based on this doctrine. Creatio ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo. God, so another way of saying this is God minus the universe equals God, but the universe minus God equals nothing. My kids like to think in simple math formulas sometimes, and I, I found that one helpful for them to understand what this means. 
Um, so he does not use pre-existing materials. He is beyond time and therefore both transcendent and imminent, meaning he's beyond, that's what transcendent means. He's imminent, that means he's close. So when God sends this servant um, that's going to judge the nations and execute justice and bring his people and all these things that we have in Isaiah 42, what kind of God's doing this? He is not like the gods of the surrounding cultures. Notice that I also put up here that many arguments for the existence of God come from this idea. They're called cosmological arguments. And what they mean by cosmological are arguments that are set up about how the universe uh, runs. Aristotle used forms of cosmological ar arguments. One of his most famous is the unmoved mover. If you've ever heard that argument before, the idea that everything is in motion. And then if you go through like this chain of events, eventually you're going to be come to the point where because an infinite regress is impossible, where you can't, you get to a point where you can't just have continuous motion. Something's got to start the whole thing, right? At some point, the mind realizes this. So Aristotle postulates without any Bible or anything that there's an unmoved mover, a kind of supreme architect of the universe. Now, it's not the Trinitarian God. It's not salvation God. It's nothing like that. But it's at least some concept of an original designer to the universe. Okay, so Aristotle gets us there. And the way people say that is that Plato and Aristotle were right as far as they went. They just didn't go far enough and they didn't have enough information to go far enough. But on things like that, they kind of had an idea. But if you believe that God used pre-existing materials, these arguments actually have a problem. Because now, who's first? God or the materials? Is the universe eternal too? So should we worship the universe? You know, we get some really weird things that come out of this. But the ancient Greeks actually screwed that one up, I would, I would actually say. Aristotle and others, they postulated an eternal universe. But I want to show you a couple of these arguments, and not because I'm, I'm, this is an apologetics class, but it's more so that when we read those passages in Isaiah and in Genesis, and there's a passage in Hebrews 11 that implies this sort of thing, what does this actually mean when we say that God created out of nothing? But beyond that, I want to show you what some of the ancient Near Eastern peoples were saying. Listen to how, I don't know, I don't know graphics the right word, but how bizarre some of these creation myths are, okay? By the way, there's all your scripture texts. I will post these later. I'm not expecting you all to write all these down. All of these passages seem to indi indicate creation ex nihilo of some kind. When you have scripture interpreting scripture and you compile all the data, right, everything from Genesis in the beginning, that means there's a singular beginning. So the question, of course, you can ask yourself is what was God doing before the beginning, right? But beginning implies that we have a beginning of time, right? That's the, at least that's the implication. Um, right. You have uh, Proverbs 3, Psalm 90, John 1. One of the things that's interesting in John, it says there was nothing uh, that has been made that uh, that has not been made that has been made that's not been through Jesus. Meaning that Jesus created everything or he's involved in the creation process. If God used to use pre-existing materials, then doesn't that mean there's something he didn't make? You see, you see what I'm saying? There's some interesting philosophical issues here. This is a, something that uh, uh, separates us from the LDS community. Um, the LDS community believes God did use pre-existing materials, and that there may have been other gods before the God that we worship. Heavenly Father may have been himself a man at one point, right? And there's a whole continuum, kind of this infinite continuum. Um, that's obviously a, a thing that divides us. Go for it. Just thinking about that, you said God created the heavens and stretched them out. I find that interesting why that was a two-step deal. Yeah, why does he do it? And it seems, it's, you almost get this idea that it's like a sculptor, like something like Taffy. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. You know, that's a great question. There are some like creation groups that will say uh, something called white hole cosmology. If you read a guy named Russell Humphreys, he's a, he's a creation scientist. He'll say that it's like a reverse black hole. And so, that would, you know, you'll find all these theories because of these kind of poetic, you know, ideas. It also solves the time light problem for people that believe the earth is young. 
because it means that there's like a trail of light as it's stretched out. So you're not looking in the past because time is relative. Time was going faster and then it's got to spread things out. That's one solution that people have. Um, I personally don't think you're ever going to completely understand or fully know. Um, I, I still think that there's something to uh, well, what's called uh, time dilation, meaning that it, it's like time zones. So where it's like two hours ahead on the East Coast and it's, yeah. you know, the year 2021 here. What if you take that and up to the max billions and billions of miles? It could be the year 2021 and the year 7 billion somewhere else. And it would be the same time. So I don't think we fully understand. You get what I'm saying? I, I think there's some stuff there where we're just not quite understanding fully the universe. And that's okay. We're finite creatures. God's not. <laughs> um, but he start my point for this. That's a great, we could go through all those theories. But my point is, is from the beginning, there's like this moment of beginning, right? So whether you hold to Big Bang cosmology or young earth or whatever, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what your cosmology is. There's a, there's a definite beginning is the point. And God's the author of that beginning. Okay. Um, you also have, uh, again, creating time and all these other things. And you can see through these passages. I'll post this, or um, you'll see it on the recording, and everybody online can see this right now. These are all different passages that imply creation ex nihilo. Now, I want to show you what the ancient Near East cosmology looked like compared to the ancient Hebrews. This is one of the reasons why it's so important that we hold to this, is it's such a contrast to the rest of the world. And that's one of the reasons I think it's true. Not just because we're contrarian, but because of how flawed most worldviews are. Look, listen to this. Sexual reproduction, assumed though not stated, in the Mesopotamian Enuma Elish epic, this is their creation story. Primeval Apsu, the fresh water, was their progenitor. The matrix Tiamat, the salt water, was she who bore them all, and they were mingling their waters together, producing the lesser gods. In a later battle, Marduk killed Tiamat and split her in two like a fish for drying. Half of her he set up and made as a cover, heaven, placing within the astral deities. Not expectorating himself, Marduk created clouds and rain from the spittle of Tiamat. Needing someone to relieve the gods of their labors, Marduk made a proposal. I shall compact blood. I shall cause bones to be. I shall make stand a human being. Let man be its name. That's their creation. That's the, 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 the Babylonian Mesopotamian creation myth. Tiamat's the gods of the wind. They blow her up, split her in half. One becomes the sky. One becomes the earth. I mean, this is just brutal and weird. Okay, that's, But that's their creation myth. Okay. Look at this. Other men's of creation are also known in Mesopotamia. In the Sumerian song of the Ho, Enlil will make the seed of mankind rise from the ground. Here, where the flesh sprouts, he set his very Ho to work. He had it placed the first model of mankind in the brick mold, and, according to this model, his people started to break through the soil. It's like zombies coming out of the earth. That's <laughs> kind of the image there. Um, an old Babylonian text requests that one god be slain and let the gods be purified by immersion in his flesh and blood, let Nintu, the mother goddess, mix clay, god, and man, and let them together be smeared with clay. Strange story. Canaanite texts from Urgrit have not yielded a creation account for say, although Atherat is called progenitrix of the gods, and El is called creator of creatures, being mother and father deities, respectively. This is what the ancient Hebrews are surrounded by, is this sort of stuff. You can add, of course, the Greco-Roman pantheon, right, with uh, Zeus and all that sort of thing. I mean, if you, if you go around... You're surrounded by pagans, and then you have this stuff in Isaiah, or this stuff in Genesis, okay? So look, this is from Zondervan Illustrated Backgrounds. Isaiah highlights the person of the creator and the purpose of the creation of his people rather than the means by which creation comes about or any stuff from which it is made. He is pictured as creating from without rather than within the creation itself. This is creation ex nihilo. He's not bound by the space-time continuum like we are, right? He's the one who started the whole thing. Okay. Well, he is the key actor 
The purpose of the account in minis is ministry to creation rather than either self-aggrandizement of the creator. He's not being braggadocious, right? He's not just saying, you know, you suck chest up and look what I did. Okay. Or the service of him as found in several neighboring creation accounts. So in the other creation accounts, the, the God does it so that people will love him more. Or the God does it so that people will worship him more. Or, you know, there's just really, really kind of strange things that take place there. But in, uh, in the God creation account, he does it because he's generous. He does it because he's merciful. Yeah, go for it. These, uh, these other people in their, in their religions, there is no beginning. Right. There really isn't a start. There's always something there first. And I understand we, we have, the scientists agree, that there's an expanding universe. So since it's expanding, there has to be a point of beginning. We're going to get into that. Okay. You're, you're, you're going to steal my thunder here. Just like, <laughs> no, it's good. It's good because actually it's what I'm going to show you two arguments for the existence of God that use this sort of thinking. Um, one's going to be the cosmological Kalam argument, which is this one. That if, if you t if let, let's say you go with the standard Big Bang model, let's just say you go with that, then you have a finite beginning. Now, if you have a finite beginning, there's got to be a cause for that beginning. What is that, right? So even if you hold the Big Bang cosmology, you still got a creator. If you hold to Young Earth cosmology, you still have a creator. You have a creator either way. It doesn't matter. Whichever standard model you want to use. And I'm going to show you that argument in just a second. That's going to use the standard cosmological models and show you that in the beginning there is a cause, and that cause we call God, to follow Thomas Aquinas, as he would say with these arguments. I'm going to show you that here in just a second. I just want to make sure that I got this stuff ready and on mute and stuff like this. All right, so theoretically, I should be able to, because I'm not using YouTube, that's what failed last time. I should be able to use this, yes. And then, then, then. nope, nope. <laughs> I'm going to have to mute, I'm going to have to mute something else. Let's try this. Try this. Try this. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. 
Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. So that's one argument that we can use um, regarding the existence of God. I'm not saying it's perfect. Now, it can, like, for example, here's some, here's some, um, some pushback I usually get on this. Um, it is not an argument that you would use to convince somebody that Jesus is the Messiah, for example, right? It's not the resurrection. It's also not a saving argument, meaning you come to a saving knowledge of God via this argument, right? That's not what this is. But it does give the idea that it is reasonable and based on how the universe functions to assume that God does exist, right? Or that a God exists. However, Muslims could use this argument, right? Jews could use this argument. Anybody that believes in a supreme transcendent being could use this argument, right? So it's not by itself a be-all, end-all. But what it does do is it shows that as you make observations of the natural universe, it is logical to assume that there's a creator, okay? That's what it does, okay? but it doesn't do more than that, okay? And it just gives you the idea to a creator. Now, I'm going to give you another one that gives you a little bit more specifics, and that's Leibniz's contingency argument. Uh, Gottfried Leibniz was actually a Lutheran, believe it or not. He's a polymath. He could, like, do everything. He's kind of like a Ben Franklin, like a German Ben Franklin, okay? He could do everything, spoke a bunch of languages, could do science, could do math, could do music, could do, I mean, he's just one of those kind of guys, okay? So Leibniz came with this argument, but it's really kind of a variation of, a, of an argument that goes back to Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, but also back to um, Aristotle again. And that's these ideas of contingencies, that something relies on something else. So you could talk about motion. You could talk about who gives birth to who. You know, you go on and on and on. And we're all reliant beings. What I tell my students on this one is that it's a reliability argument and not in reliability as in somebody can rely on you, but reliability in the sense of reliance you're relying on somebody. So if you, if your parents didn't exist, neither would you, right? That's reliance. You're reliant on your parents for your existence. Well, the whole universe functions that way, okay? That we're reliant on things. It's called contingency. The question is, is does that chain go on forever? 
or is there an ultimate uncaused causer? See how this is going to go? That causes everything and there's the non-contingent being. That's the argument. I'm making the argument that in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, and throughout the entire Old Testament, and other passages as well, that we have non-contingent beings that we have, uh, and there's only one, and his name is God, or if you want to say the Holy Trinity. That non-contingency is something God argues for. I am God, I am not man. He creates the entire heavens and the earth. He seems to be outside his creation while still interacting with his creation, right? Those sort of things. And so that contingency idea is what I'm going to show you here. And I'm curious how you react to this one. This one, my students in particular in the high school really like this one because it just makes sense once you think about it, about how God is just simply the only one that's not uncaused, that he has existence in himself. Um, Exodus 3.14, when God shows up at the burning bush and Moses says, hey, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. I am the self-existence one. I have existence in myself. You could make the argument that that implies the argument you're going to see here, that God's not caused by anything, right? Okay, so here's the contingency argument. I'm only showing you a couple of these today. i got a bunch of these, as you can kind of tell. You can see my whole playlist here, okay? So, but I'm, I'm just going to show you this. I'm going to go back to the text of Isaiah. I just want you thinking a little bit differently, hopefully, about what we're reading when we talk about the servant and who it is that's sending the servant. And if the servant himself is himself the creator, how awesome the incarnation really is. When the servant shows up, that this is who we're talking about, showing up in human form. It should blow our minds a little bit. All right, so here is the contingency argument from Leibniz. We live in an amazing universe. Have you ever wondered why it exists? Why does anything at all exist? Gottfried Leibniz wrote, the first question which should rightly be asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? He came to the conclusion that the explanation is found in God. But is this reasonable? Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The universe exists. From these, it follows logically that the explanation of the universe's existence is God. The logic of this argument is airtight. If the three premises are true, the conclusion is unavoidable. But are they more plausibly true than false? The third premise is undeniable for anyone seeking truth. But what about the first premise? Why not say, the universe is just there and that's all? No explanation needed. End of discussion. Well, imagine you and a friend are hiking in the woods and come across a shiny sphere lying on the ground. You would, naturally, wonder how it came to be there. And you'd think it odd if your friend said, there's no reason or explanation for it. Stop wondering. It just is. And if the ball were larger, it would still require an explanation. In fact, if the ball were the size of the universe, the change in its size wouldn't remove the need for an explanation. Indeed, curiosity about the existence of the universe seems scientific and intuitive. Someone might say, if everything that exists needs an explanation, what about God? Doesn't he need an explanation? And if God doesn't need an explanation, then why does the universe need an explanation? To address this, Leibniz makes a key distinction between things that exist necessarily and things that exist contingently. 
Things that exist necessarily exist by necessity of their own nature. It's impossible for them not to exist. Many mathematicians think that abstract objects like numbers and sets exist like this. They're not caused to exist by something else, they just exist by necessity of their own nature. Things that exist contingently are caused to exist by something else. Most of the things we're familiar with exist contingently. They don't have to exist. They only exist because something else caused them to exist. If your parents had never met, you wouldn't exist. There's no reason to think the world around us had to exist. If the universe had developed differently, there might have been no stars or planets. It's logically possible that the whole universe might not have existed. It doesn't exist necessarily, it exists contingently. If the universe might not have existed, why does it exist? The only adequate explanation for the existence of a contingent universe is that its existence rests on a non-contingent being. Something that cannot not exist because of the necessity of its own nature. It would exist no matter what. So, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. But what about our second premise? Is it reasonable to call the explanation of the universe God? Well, what is the universe? It's all of space-time reality, including all matter and energy. It follows that if the universe has a cause of its existence, that cause cannot be part of the universe. It must be non-physical and immaterial, beyond space and time. The list of entities that could possibly fit this description is fairly short, and abstract objects cannot cause anything. Leibniz's contingency argument shows that the explanation for the existence of the universe can be found only in the existence of God. Or, if you prefer not to use the term God, you may simply call him the extremely powerful, uncaused, necessarily existing, non-contingent, non-physical, immaterial, eternal being who created the entire universe and everything in it. Exactly. So what do you think of that interesting argument? Yeah, go for it. I think I'm missing something because if we went back to the previous film, everything that comes into existence or exists has a cause. Right. So they would be contingent then. God pre-exists the universe. There is a point of origin for the universe. For what cause did God create the universe and ultimately man? So that, that's a great question. So why does God create in the first place? Because he doesn't have to, right? I'm told it's his nature, but that's a weak explanation. Well, so 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 what do we know? So if we go, this is a great question. So this is we're going to talk about this is this will be good for this Isaiah thing too. When we talk about the attribute. We call this the attributes of God, right? So like that whole list we saw there: uncreated, eternal, necessarily existing. You know, a whole list of things. Those are very transcendent concepts. But we also have some other data on the character of God. He is merciful. He's loving. He's gracious. Abounding in steadfast love, as it quotes in the Psalms, right? So if that's true. Then and God doesn't have to create because He's not contingent. It's not like He needs us, right? God doesn't need human beings. He He doesn't need the universe. He was existing before it was there. If you have a needy God, then He's the universe and He's not God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So why does He create? 
One of the best books that I read on this, um, and it's from an Anglican priest, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's by Michael Reeves. He has a whole chapter on this because the question is, is, what was God doing before creation? Was he just hanging out? You know, was he, was he just chilling? Before there was time, um, what was he doing? You know, once, once beyond time, what did I say? How do I say this to my, my students? They love this one. Um, oh, once upon a time, there was a time where there was no time. Who was the author of this book? Michael, I think it's Reeves. Michael Reeves, I think is his name. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. When Yvonne Wittrock was here, she recommended this book. So this is a, this is a really good one. Um, it's He's an Anglican pastor, evangelical Anglican. If God is triune, if he's, if he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can actually answer that question pretty easily. What was God doing before creation? He was eternally loving the Son and the bond of the Holy Spirit. If God is a mathematical singularity like the God of Islam, now we've got a problem. Because if he's supposed to be gracious and merciful, and he's before the universe, who's he being gracious and merciful to? See the problem? But if God is triune, it's part of his nature to be that way because there's a plurality in the one God. You see how that works? And so the Trinity actually explains some of those philosophical de de uh, those, uh, those issues. Now I get back to Ralph's argument then, or Ralph's question. So let's just say we, we accept the premise that God's a non-contingent being, or that God is the unmoved mover, or the uncaused causer, or whatever term you want to use. Why does he create it all? And the answer is, it's because of his character. Because he's merciful, generous, loving, and he wants to share. It's almost like, instead of saying, I need to create the universe to give me something to play with, which is what some people think of, like God's kind of like a kid in the sandbox or something. Instead, it's, it's almost as if God wants to share. I want to give of myself. I want to have a relationship with my creatures because I, I, it's, it's an act of sheer generosity and gospel for him to create it all. And by doing so, he actually now extends that life. He's a life giver. He doesn't hold on to it like it's something that he can just kind of hold on to like he's jealous of it. He wants to extend life to his creatures. Does that make sense? So, it's, so he's creating out of the abundance of his generosity. He's creating out of the abundance of his love and mercy so that he can have a relationship with his creatures. That's a pretty amazing thought. But that's why he's doing Because you're right, he didn't have to. If he's non-contingent, he's not relying on the universe. He does not have to make it. That's kind of the point. I guess you could say that he, in the pre-existence of everything else, was such a, a fulfillment of love and creation that he could not not create. Yeah, it's almost like he was, it's, yeah, I mean, it's hard for us to think that way because we don't want to put God into like a, to say that he's compulsed, you know, that, we, that he's no. compulsed to do it. It's, it's compulsive, but on the same, on the same token, I kind of like where you're going in that in the sense that it's almost like it, he's so generous and so loving, he just can't help, can't help himself. I'm going to share this, right? It's kind of, it's just part of his nature. And so God is both imminent and transcendent. And actually the church really screws up on this one sometimes if we emphasize one over the other. If we so emphasize the transcendent God without the imminent God, we end up with some of the abuses in the Middle Ages, where God is so holy and so beyond that we need all the saints as intercessors just to even have a shot. Okay, that's that's the that's the danger of a transcendent God. He's so beyond and so unapproachable, we need all the help we can get, right? And that's the stuff that Luther's dealing with in the 1500s. The opposite problem, if God is imminent and not transcendent, is some of the excesses of certain types of evangelical Christianity, where it's all about an emotional experience. Right? Just me, the coffee, and my Jesus, and the mountains are my church, and I don't need the Bible. I don't I just need I just need to have my experiences. Right? It's all about my experiences and my emotional connection. God's just with me right now and I can just feel it. And then all of a sudden, two other people that say the same thing contradict each other. Well, who's right? There's no objective truth there. You get what I'm saying? So you have two extremes. If God's this giant, this giant transcendent being that we can't even fully even approach and scary, okay. 
or God's so near that he ends up becoming in our image because then it's just our emotions. If, he is, if, he's, if we have a good experience, well, that must be from God then. This happens at college, by the way, at Christian colleges, that we stereotype this. And Wheaton was a little better, but some Christian colleges, you need to date me because God called me. God told me to. Yeah. Aaron, what, really quick. Yeah, I don't understand what all those anthropomorphic images we're giving. I kind of don't get that. What, like which anthropomorphic? Like well, which one? God is this and this. We're giving them human qualities, it sounds like. Like which, like, it, like what, what, what do you mean? He's loving and... Oh, sure. But I mean, those are the terms we, I mean, I'm just using scripture in that case, right? Yeah, I because know. I mean, scripture it's itself says God is love, right? right? And God is relational and God's person. That's the thing. It's not an abstract. That's why he's not an abstract object. They kind of talked about this a little bit. Yeah. He actually is a, he's one God in three persons. So he's inherently relational. So now it's true that he possesses those qualities in a way that's beyond or not quite how we would do it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I'm with you on that. But I wouldn't say that it's, that's, that by using terms like love and mercy. Yes. Is our language limited? Yes. We're never going to be able to fully comprehend that. Um, there's a there's two ways of talking about God, and then I'll get to Ralph in here on this. There's two ways of talking about God. There's the positive way, which is telling what God is, and there's the apophatic way, which is telling what God is not. Okay, so we say so. Uh, this is easy. We all do this. Okay, you know the hymn "Immortal Invisible." That's a great hymn for that. Immortal, invisible. Those are things God is not. He is not visible. He is not mortal. You're not really saying what God is. You're just saying what He's not. Right? That's negative theology. And that's easier sometimes because it's much harder to speak positively because God's so beyond our experience. That's the transcendent God. Immortal, invisible, uncircumscribable, meaning you can't measure him, right? Those are apophatic ways. But when you say God is wisdom, God is love, God is justice, God is mercy, those are things that are positive statements, right? And so in those positive statements, is there a limit to our human language? The answer is absolutely, 100% yes. However, we do know some stuff. Right, and we see it in the person of Christ. God Himself takes on flesh. That's why this is going to be a good segue to Isaiah. The servant actually shows us who God is. Otherwise, you're right. If God didn't intervene and give us His Word or give us His Son, we would have no clue. <laughs> right? Or we, or He would be like these arguments. We would know there is a God. We would know that there's a Creator. We would know that there's probably a right and a wrong. You know, we'd have some gen general, but we would not know what we know, like you know, from Scripture. It's so, a great. What were you going to add? Does that kind of help? I don't know. I'm just trying to think through it. Yeah, go for it. I think you kind of but I, as, as the statement was being made, as you're talking, I'm going to kind of load this back up. Yeah, go for giving it. God attributes, man's uh, human attributes, but actually, I think God is giving us godly attributes. He is giving us. We we say God is love, but actually, God is love and has given us that understanding. Right. Uh, kind of the obverse of the obverse. Not going to mute this again. Sorry. sorry. It'll go away. There it is. I just got to join this again because I want to present my screen to the people that are watching online. Oh, it stopped anyways. Let's try that again. So I'm saying that we're uh, we're not giving God attributes. He has shared his attributes with us. Right. And we're simply acknowledging them. No, I think that's fair. And I think, yeah, it's like, it's almost like, uh, well, that's, I think that's what it means to be um, in the image of God is part of that too, right? If we're image bearers, then we are reflecting, right, the, that nature, that rational, moral being that we are. That's actually what all this stuff is right over here. We were having a big discussion in, a, in class the other day about what it means to be in the image of God because there's this modern move right here. You can see it over here. And if you're on the screen, forgive me. I'm walking over to hit a board. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, is it something that's ontological, part of our nature, meaning that, we can have relationships, we have wills, we have emotions, we're creative, you know, those sort of things as a reflection of God. Or is it merely functional? We represent God and creation 
as the stewards of his creation. You know how he says, go and fill the earth and subdue it? He says that in Genesis. So rather than us being ontologically distinct from the animals, instead it's more of a functional thing. That's a very modern view, but that's very popular right now. I hold to this view, it's sometimes called the substantial or the essential view. This is the idea that the image of God is something inherent in us as beings because we are rational, moral creatures. When a cat kills a mouse, he's not done anything wrong. He's being a cat. But if a human kills another human, we all recognize that that's a huge moral, you know, moral problem, right? Why? Because there's something different about human beings. There's something essentially about different about human beings as moral agents that's different. So I call us that. That's, I call that the uh, the substantial image. All of these options could also be true, by the way, um, all at the same time, depending on how you, you know, it's kind of an emphasis on the syllable sort of thing. Could we be essentially human and have a functional purpose? Yes. So I think it's wrong to like make these like dichotomous. But these are all different views of the image of God. Um, I need to get back to Isaiah here in a second. But I just want to just kind of make that because it's based on what Ralph was saying here, that if God creates us in his image, then when we get some of these attributes and we experience good things like love or mercy or kindness or even just joy, that they're just little hints of the divine character. Right. We experience both. C.S. Lewis says that we have when we get to heaven, we're going to say, oh, we already kind of started it on earth. We just didn't know it yet. And then when people get to hell, they're going to say the same thing. It's a really interesting quote, but there's a lot of truth in that, that we kind of experience heaven and hell right now. We just don't realize how much so. And that when we get to our final destination, we'll realize how it started. It's not so much like, so, so we can talk about heaven and hell later. But my point is, C.S. Lewis has some good wisdom there, I think, that we have those kind of reflections, those little shadowy moments. Of the way Paul says it, we see it in the glass darkly. It's like a really cloudy mirror. Right. And that, so all good thoughts. I need you. Well, we're running out of time. This is all I'm going to do 42 twice. All right. Let's go back to this. Let's see if it'll work for me here. Okay. All right. I was just going to show you how this works. So this mighty man. So let's go back. Actually, I'm going to go back to the, the, the servant song. Okay. Oop, there we go. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands await for his law. Some earlier translations have islands. Okay, so thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. That's what we just looked at, okay? Who spread up the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Okay, he doesn't give that glory to idols. And actually, that's one of the reasons I showed you those quotes from the ancient Near East, is compare the gods of Babylon, or Greece, or Egypt, or Canaan, to this god, the non-contingent eternal being, who also happens to be loving and gracious also, and desires relationship with us. And this continues. I'm just going to show you this just for the sake of argument. We'll continue 42 next week and also do 43. But it talks about because of the reaction to this, it says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise to the end of the earth, because the servant has come, right? Who's the servant? You go down to the sea, all that fills it, the coastlines and their inhabitants. It means the Gentiles and the Jews. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Keter inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. 
That's a Sela Hilltop. It's a little grainy, so it's a, if you're in the front, it might be a little pixelated. On the screen here, it looks pretty good, though. Um, that is the hilltops that are being mentioned. Praise the Lord from those hilltops. So there's a couple of things that we can say about this, and I'll close you on this thought. Number one, why is there anybody there in the first place? There's nothing there. Okay, there's nothing. But actually, people did live there, right? They lived in caves, or they lived in some of the shaded areas. And um, if you lived next to an oasis or something like that, there was actually a way to, to sustain and have a life. Um, but the other thing about that is if you're singing praises, how far is that echo going to go? Yeah. Think about that. So in other words, the whole earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Get the idea here? So if they're praising from the hilltops of Selah, what that means is, is everybody in the entire neighborhood is hearing this, right? So not only is everybody hearing it because of the echo effect, but places that there shouldn't be people, there are people. So, and it's all in response to the coming of the suffering servant that we're going to continue to kind of uncover in Isaiah. So I had a little rabbit trail there with these arguments for the existence of God, but I wanted to kind of emphasize this. You should know that we as uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but really just as Orthodox biblical Christians, we are pretty much non-compromising on creatio ex nihilo. We do, we do not compromise of creation out of nothing. By the way, that is the uh, official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the official position of the Eastern Orthodox Church also, that God created out of nothing that there was nothing, and it's hard for us to understand because we live in a material, finite universe, but that before there was nothing, God still existed because he is immaterial, spiritual, transcendent, and those sort of things. Hard for us to completely fully comprehend, um, but that is the official teaching of the church, including us, since the beginning, really, if that helps you. Any comments or questions on this? I hope this has been kind of cool. I have fun with this sort of stuff. Um, I'm in my classroom now, so I have all my toys, and I have all my like videos and all my, so you're getting a little bit of a full dose today. Um, Anything else? We'll, we can say the blessing on ourselves and I'll end the recording. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.